Ladies and gentlemen, Orange Bloods, my name is Alex Dunlap. I'm the curator of and the narrator for The Deep Dig. Ladies and gentlemen, Orange Bloods, welcome back to the Deep Dig Podcast here on orangebloods.com. My name is Alex Dunlap. We have a ton of questions from the Orange Bloods community this week, uh, ranging from what I think the right age to get married is to uh, what's the furthest away I've ever been physically from another human being in my entire life. Uh, Also questions about... If I were a crab fisherman on the deadliest catch, but none of that is going to pull you into this content. What's going to pull you into this content is Texas football, and we have a spring game coming up. And it's going to be a very telling spring game for a lot of reasons. The first reason being, look, as the as as a media, we have not even seen how a practice looks in a full eleven on eleven team setting through an actual, even really a, through a, even even a series of football, as the media. No one has. Tom Herman has. His staff has. Those players on the Texas football team have. All the coaches that have been able to attend practices, they've been able to see. And let me tell you one thing, uh, Mr. Bob Shipley, Coach Bob Shipley, he is welcoming uh, uh, just a, a host of high school coaches to every single practice that the Texas Longhorns have had all springtime. He's clearly done a great job in his first year back here at Texas in that uh, d- developer of high school relationships role that that he's in because the turnout from high school coaches at every practice has been outstanding. But aside from that, for as far as from the Texas football team, no one's seen a full practice. Maybe the guys there recording for LHN. Maybe they let like Lowell Galindo or some of these dudes from the Longhorn Network in there to watch a full practice. But as for the media, you know, the, the local media, the national media, mainstream media, any outside media, no one has seen what it actually looks like, what the offense looks like, what the substitutions in and out look like, what the formations look like, what the concepts truly are, how fast they are getting the plays in and out. Like, uh, like how does it all look? How does it all flow? That's, that's going to be a huge issue. It's going to be a big issue to look at and, and, and something to watch. And it'll be the first time that we've gotten to see it. Thankfully, the spring game will be something that we get to record and analyze and watch back. I'll, <laughs> I'll probably watch it as just a function of my job, no less than 40 to uh, forty to 60 times. And you can find all that content at orangebloods.com uh, whenever it gets going. And, you know, what else, the, the other thing at Orange Bloods that will be coming up in the war room this week is I'm trying to just do a pre-spring game breakdown and and just kind of what we've learned position to position um, through this spring period and what to expect in the spring game, how things might change going into the summer. It would take me uh, uh, too long to go through each position here on the podcast, but I did want to hit on a couple things as they pertain to um, uh, you know pr- pr- the practice on Tuesday. Uh, Herman was made available after the practice on Tuesday. We weren't allowed to the open portion of practice uh, that goes on during individual drills, usually till about period six. We didn't even get that on Tuesday because it was raining outside and they moved the practice inside the bubble. Uh, but uh, Coach Herman said the, the updates were on Tony Carter, the running backs, Tony Carter and Tristan Houston. Both of those guys are back and they are full steam ahead. That's good news because even coming into the scrimmage, the Saturday scrimmage last week, both of those guys were back at practice, but both wearing non-contact 
jerseys. So they've gotten those green jerseys off. Um, so, you know, I would expect to see mainly Tony O'Carter and Tristan Houston in the spring game because uh, Kirk Johnson was apparently injured. Uh, they don't expect any of the injuries to be major, but just another. I mean, now Kirk Johnson is like Chris Warren, Kirk Johnson, now Kyle Porter. Uh, you know, you got Tony Carter and Tristan Houston as your runners uh, coming into the spring game, and those would, would have been the guys that conventional wisdom would have told you coming into the spring would have been your number four and your number five guys. Tony Carter, of course, just being a redshirt freshman, he shouldn't even uh, have gone to his high school prom yet. And then Tristan Houston, who many around the program thought was a, a definite transfer candidate just based on the fact that in front of him you do have uh, these players. And then also you have Daniel Young coming in in the summertime, another freshman that uh, Tom Herman really loved that he re had recruited at the University of Houston. So uh, the interesting thing was, I mean, with all the ballyhoo that surrounded Chris Warren coming into this camp, it seemed like once the once the practices started and the pads went on, the reports that we'd heard from camp was that these running backs weren't really looking so good. And that maybe Tom Herman, who had talked so much about how much he loved Chris Warren's tape and about how this is a guy who you can feed, and we'd heard behind the scenes, you know, that the Herman loves Chris Warren. He's excited about what he could do in the off what he's gonna do in the offense. And fans shouldn't worry about their ideas of what a typical runner in a Tom Herman-esque offense has looked like, specifically what their runners have looked like at the University of Houston, who are um, more involved as pass catchers in the intermediate passing game, uh, more involved as extensions of the run game, you know, as, as pass catching options. That's something we hadn't seen out of Warren. Some people worried how he would fit. Tom Herman basically came in and said publicly as well as behind the scenes, hey, <laughs> you know, I love this guy. I think he's a guy that we can feed. So you figured that it would be more good buzz coming out of camp. I just think once camp started, either he wasn't ready or he just didn't look that good and then and and then got hurt. I don't know what it was with Chris Warren, but it seems like the narrative around Coach Herman with him has changed. And the narrative now becomes he needs to guy he he needs to be a guy that can deliver more contact. And he needs to be able to lower his pads and run over people. Somehow Chris Warren has given Coach Herman the idea that despite his initial optimism that there could be something there with him not lowering his pads, him not getting behind his pads, and him not running it quite as powerfully as Coach had envisioned. Um, you have Kirk Johnson, who is at this point uh, yet to play a healthy, more than a healthy 12 snaps for Texas. We keep hearing about what a beast he is and what a freak he is. I feel like I talk about it all the time, but he's never been healthy. He's not going to be healthy this spring. And I guess fans should just hope that he is ready to go for fall camp. That could be a, a, a huge piece of the puzzle. If he's completely healthy, that changes the landscape of your running back position like that. Um, Tristan Houston has just been an interesting wild card because through this whole process, he's been the one that some people have actually said sort of looks best out there. <laughs> just, you know, being completely forgotten about. Tony O'Carter is still out there swimming. He is, you know, he is the best running back in the 2017 class, but he is still a 2017 kid. And most of those guys aren't on schedule to get onto campus until the summertime starts. So I, I, th I thought the other thing that was interesting that Herman mentioned was about Puna Ford. He just all oh, man, every practice, whenever he talked, like they asked about, you know, reporters ask who looks good. Uh, they, they ask who, 
you know, has been standing out in team drills and stuff that we're not around there to get to see because we really only, I mean, we really only, only get to see the first 35 or so minutes of practice, the first 40 minutes of practice. I always try and get there early. So I just stand by the gate so I can watch, <laughs> you know, just as much as I can. But usually, you know, they only let us in there till about period five or six and they don't start team until period eight practice if it's anything like any other practice you know in the college world probably goes to about practice 24 probably goes to about period 24 so you know we don't get to see if any of these guys really pop off a ton in team drills but Herman always says Puna Ford he says he says about him look out he says if we got 11 guys on defense they can play like Puna look out so uh he loves Puna there at the nose position and I, I think that that's something interesting because you know prior to this uh, prior to this spring football period, you remember he was just talking about what fat asses all these guys were. He just said that these defensive linemen look like, you know, basically said these guys look like junk and a bunch of slugs and they're too fat. He, he even said it like these guys need to quit being so fat. Um, you know, it's just something I thought that was uh, kind of interesting that Puna Ford has just completely seemingly distinguished himself from that group and he's somebody that, um, you know, Herman clearly considers as one of his guys and one of the guys that he considers in that, you know, as he calls it, his 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 goal group of players, you know, seemingly the group of champions. Man, I think one other thing I thought that was awesome, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack from that availability last night with Herman, but the other thing is the satellite camps. And I've talked about it and talked about it so much, and I've done the deep dig columns on it about the recruiting heat maps and about where satellite camps need to go and about how you're misutilizing resources if you're not tapping into these areas. Like it's like they, it's like the recruiting department read my column. <laughs> it's like, and, and they're going to all the most important spots, man. They're going to all the spots on the heat map except for I, I don't see anything uh, specifically referencing. Like the 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 Hampton Roads area, but maybe that kind of area is somewhere where Texas doesn't even need to go go recruit. But Atlanta, uh, Florida, I'm sure they're going to get something going in in New Orleans. Although I'm not sure that he mentioned New Orleans uh, yesterday in the availability, but definitely definitely Atlanta. You got to get to Atlanta. You got to get to Miami. Uh, you know the interesting one that I heard mentioned because whenever he was talking to talking about. Uh, Los Angeles also said Las Vegas, and I got thinking to myself, I said, oh, my God, I, I'm going to get to go to all these cities. Like, Herman's hooking it up, like, for us, too, as media, because now I'm probably going to get to go to Vegas or Los Angeles or Miami, and probably I can parlay that Miami trip into some kind of fishing trip. I mean, you can, literally, you can... You can go to Miami, and within three and a half hours, you can be out on some boat going after tarpon. So uh, certainly certainly excited about that and think it's great for the University of Texas to spread its blueprint to uh, these other very, very, very fertile recruiting areas. The writing's been on the wall that this has needed to happen for so long. Uh, just, you know, very important for this to happen for the University of Texas, the university with this many resources. Um, so kudos to the recruiting staff for getting after it and just saying, you know, this is our stance with satellite camps. We are going after it. We are going to going to hit the fertile recruiting grounds. We are going to we are going to put our blueprint of, of our brand in those recruiting grounds. Just fantastic. And then finally, I thought the other thing was the hydration chart. The Anwar was taking a piss and in Moncrief, and he looks up and he sees this hydration chart, and it's got like levels of colors of um 
of urine, right? And this is straight out of the Urban Meyer playbook. Whenever I did the deep dig study on uh, GPS technology, long before I ever did any of my work with the Senior Bowl and Catapult, but I do remember that that column I did for the deep dig where I was studying the GPS technology, the different things that, uh, the different analytic things that um, uh, teams, NFL and college teams are, are doing from uh, like a health analytics standpoint. One of the things I talked about was the P chart and Urban Meyer has it. I know the Dallas Cowboys have kind of something like it, but the one is the Longhorn football hydration chart. So they have the championship hydration levels where you go from a, a clear to sort of a eggshell to sort of a light yellow and then after that, you have a, a tier called the Selfish Teammate, where it's basically two yellow, you know, yellow. Just how you picture a yellow crayon. That's your selfish teammate if your hydration, if your urine looks like that. Uh, where there, there's six and seven where it looks like it's more of a yellowy orange. So, you know, six slightly less orange than seven. Uh, that classification is called blatant disregard for your teammates. You are headed to Area 51. <laughs> so I'm guessing Area 51 now, that's a context clue that they do not call it the pit like Charlie Strong called it uh, whenever they are in their uh, brutal rehab and just kind of hell camp of, um, you know, where you go if you're in disciplinary trouble or where you go if you're uh, rehabbing an injury from another part of your body. I guess they call that Area 51. And then the last one is number eight, which basically looks orange. And I think if you had pee that was this color, it, it, I mean, it might as well say you are dead because I can't imagine a just, you know, dark orange piss. But this says, uh, for that one, it says, you are a bad guy. <laughs> so he's straight up telling you, if your pee is that dark, it's not just about you being a bad, um, you know, a, a, about you being bad at listening to instructions. Like, no, you're, you're an actual bad person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, a quick thing I wanted to hit on before we got to the Q&A, too, um, was the 2018 linebacker, uh, Byron Hobbs. He commits to the University of Texas. He becomes commitment number two under Tom Herman. Whenever these commits come in, whenever we have time, and it feels like we certainly have time now, um, just at this time prior to the prior to the spring game, and this, with this only being the second commitment, just kind of go over my thoughts about him. I took some time over the weekend to watch as much of him as I could. It was really hard because it's hard to find any of uh, Fort Worth Eastern Hills uh, full games uh, from 2016. There was one 2015 game uh, that you you can find. But anyway, he's a he's he's a linebacker. He's a consensus three star uh, at this point in his re recruitment. Uh, six foot four, uh, 207 pounds. That's a real six foot four, I think, because that's from the Nike camp. So we'll consider that Nike verified. The speed, uh, seeming that it says is Nike verified on his on his huddle is a four nine. So not the best foot speed, as we'll get to the vertical. Very good though. It shows some good explosive uh, attributes. So the 33 inch vertical that was a Nike verified vertical. Um, so lots of great offers. Uh, Arkansas, Baylor, Ole Miss. Oklahoma State, A&M, Oklahoma, TCU. He's got like 15 offers, 15 D1 offers, and it seems like uh, his his offers have really picked up this spring if, if you look at the timing of them. So if you look at the position-specific uh, position functional traits that I look for in linebacker prospects, it's first you look at the size frame and – and with this guy, it's, it's an interesting deal because he uh, he's he's long and he's lanky. He's he's a he's a long strider. He actually racked up over 300 yards as a junior in six games as a wide receiver. 
So he's he's got a big wingspan. He's got he's lanky with some nice size paws on him. He's got a bit of a slim, kind of wiry, just you know, slim wiry frame to him. He's, he's you know, it's not much, he looks more like a wide receiver's frame. It's it's not a Charles Ominahu frame. I mean, we look back at him and we kind of say, do you remember Charles was pretty pretty lanky with big paws himself, you know? But he was six four and two twenty five or two thirty. We're talking a kid here who's you know. This this is more of a, a guy who's a linebacker who's going to you know he or a guy who's going to grow into an outside linebacker more so than Charles coming in a guy who's going to grow into a defensive end if that makes any sense so Hobbs isn't going to fill out in the same way I could see him getting up to maybe two forty you know I don't know I think um, as always I you know I always want to say reserve the right to once i see the kid in person and, and see his frame in person i you know, reserve the right to change that but i i think 240 245 well if you look at ominahu he was more like i said from the beginning 265 270 he's gonna get there one day book it uh so i think he's clearly being recruited as an outside linebacker i think he's the b backer due, due to that length even though in high school he can play both inside and outside uh so for the feet i think they're uh, you know, I think that as a linebacker, slightly above average, not as a receiver. He doesn't have a good. He doesn't have good feet as a receiver. Who cares about his? You know, who cares about the receiver stuff anyway? I mean, I mean, he's not. I don't think he's ever going to play receiver at the next level. He shows pretty, pretty good footwork in like, in like defensive, actual defensive settings that are in game settings. I noticed though when I watched his his just the reps from the Nike camp and the reps from the Rivals camp, feet can look a little clunky in coverage at times. I think that you know something that he can definitely work on, but in the run game to flow with the play and like redirect back to cutback lanes and, and space, he he can plant then he can explode to the ball carry with some athleticism. That is one hundred percent true. If you watch his his highlights and tell me he can't do that, I mean, if you say show me what he can do, that's one of the things that. If somebody tells you he can't do that, you just point at the tape and say you're you're being cockamamie. Look at it, you know. Um, I think in coverage, I think his feet are good enough to where he can he can he can, you know, when those slot receivers come to him at the second level, like I think when it's coupled with his long arms, those long arms that he has, he can give them trouble even when they're given a two-way go. Even though he has a little bit of work to do, I think with his steps and his feet and coverage. I think that his length coupled with his the fact that naturally he's just a pretty quick dude. I think that he can handle a two-way go. And then as we'll talk about when we get to the the um, when we get to the 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 balance section, the balance and flexibility section, I think he has much better flexibility through his hips than he does through his through his ankles, certainly. So I think that he ha- he'll have the ability to flip his hips and uh, work seam routes and stuff like that if he ever needed to. I think, though, you know, thinking about him being an edge sort of edge linebacker guy, probably a B-backer guy in Todd Orlando's defense, he's sometimes going to have to be split out on on a slot wide receiver. So you just worry a little bit about the fact that his feet seem a small bit slow in coverage right now. As far as quickness and speed, um, you know, I mean, the 4-9-ish 40 times verified by Nike, it's, I'm, it shows he's pretty, you know, I think he's more quick, you know, <laughs> fairly natural fairly natural read and react player. He, he can he can keep up with his reaction time. But the pure sideline to sideline speed, this isn't like a Gary Johnson. I just I don't I don't see him as inside. I think he's an an, an outside guy because he's quick. He's got he's got some good burst to him. He's got some explosion as ev- as evidenced by the vertical. But um, you know, I, I feel like I 
I will say he's not a liability in pursuit, at least not versus high school competition. So at least he has that level of speed. Um, I think that that comes more through like recovery quickness, though, you know, and feet that don't really waste motion in their changes of direction more than it comes from just pure speed. As far as his power and explosion, I mean, it's easy to notice better than expected power. Uh, and and we're, again, we're talking about the new um, three-star, cons- basically consensus three-star, but se- seemingly rising 2018 linebacker commit Byron Hobbs. Uh, with the, you know, I, I think the it's better than expected as far as his, his his power and his disengage moves from linemen that he's engaged with, from fullbacks, at least at the high school level. He will toss players aside effortlessly at times to get to the ball carrier. Uh, and this is even even this is even rem- remembering this is a guy that we're talking about. We just said is lanky and has long arms. I think that that shows I mean, this guy's not a tree stump with anchoring power. Like this is like a guy with long, like quick snap lever arms. Like it's it's like it's 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 very promising that he can appear you know that powerful and explosive you know through his arms and upper body whenever he clearly needs so much development uh, in 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 that area. And who knows what he's going to come in and be able to do in the weight room in that area. I just I think functionally there's uh, something there with the upper body power. Um, I think that whenever you look at his length and his ability to get off blockers by keeping them at a long arm's length, and then you know he he can yank and he can stab, swat, he can like toss him aside. It's like the explosive power through the lower body. Then you can see through his like bringing his hips and and bringing them through tackles and and driving the ball carrier back. So again, uh, a little bit of that explosiveness that uh, we keep on referring back to the 33 and a half inch vertical as a high school junior to exhibit. I I think with the agility, like we talked about, it's with the feet. I think that it's average to, you know, uh, above average. I think three, I think he's a three star guy, three star, high three star guy, you know, I think, and he has that kind of, uh, that kind of agility with his balance and flexibility. I touched on it earlier, but I think that you know he keeps his center of gravity and coverage in anticipation of those two way goes like we talked about. So as far as as far as that, I, I think it's I think it's okay. As we talked about when we mentioned power, he he can engage, he can get off the edge, he can keep the opposition at arm's length. We already discussed all that. Um, he can use the distance created though with his long arms to kind of bend the edge. I would say at this point in his development, he seems more flexible through the hips to engage, diagnose, disengage, and redirect to the ball carrier than he is through the ankles. And I mean through the ankles, I'm saying like um, his ability to flatten, to get low, bend the edge, and be able to have that same change of direction ability totally intact whenever he's, he's bent over with, uh, you know, with his ankles completely flexed like that. So I think that while he projects most as an edge rusher, uh, the flexibility functionally doesn't show – it's just like he can develop that flexibility through through the ankles once he does once he can flatten and then use the length of those arms he's going to be a guy who can really really bend the edge there uh so i I think you know comes in with tremendous upside i think that as far as his tackling to the tackling's excellent he he you know he keeps it he, he keeps his eyes on the he keeps his eyes on the guys as we you know as i was said yesterday in a thread about uh, how Malik Jefferson had missed a tackle on one of those one-on-one reps that um, the Texas football team, sh- uh, you know, shared on Snapchat. I said, you know, he he missed that because he was he was he was watching um, he was watching Armani Foreman's shoulder pads, and he he needed to be watching his, his his belt buckle. And 
I think that this is a player, Byron Hobbs, who you can tell he, he breaks down, he gets he gets good balance, he gets his eyes on the belt buckle, and he makes good tackles. He gets his head across the bow, he, he wraps up. Uh, and then the, the final thing, coverage. Uh, we discussed that earlier. I think he's, you know, he's shown on film that he is not a liability in coverage, and it's not due to completely having great feet, but it's due to having, you know, good instincts. It's due to having some good length. It's ha- due to having some... Uh, good power and you think with his feet if they can just become a little less clunky in this one area he can all of a sudden be really good in coverage because all of the other attributes are there the deep dig podcast is brought to you by orangebloods.com at orangebloods.com we provide the best in everything texas longhorns football whether it's uh, texas longhorns football texas longhorns basketball texas longhorns baseball Uh, if it involves the University of Texas Athletic Department, you will find all the latest breaking news, all of the rumors, all of the best analysis, all of the best features at orangebloods.com. It is not the biggest university fan website in the entire world for no reason. It is not the University of Texas market leader for no reason. Just come get a seven-day trial at orangebloods.com. It's completely free. Click inside the 40 acres and just see what all the fuss is about because the fuss is about the orange bloods community it is thousands tens of thousands of people just like you that love longhorns football that are connected through the burnt orange nation connected to one another as orange bloods and it's a big family if you come to orange bloods and you give it a seven day trial i guarantee you you will be part of our family for a lifetime you will not be able to give up orange bloods i promise you that and speaking of the orange bloods community we now move on to the most important part of the podcast the orangebloods.com community's question and answer portion of the podcast Alex Dunlap's work at OrangeBloods.com is brought to you by Wendy Swantkowski, DDS, the best in family and cosmetic dentistry for the Houston Memorial area. Please support this content by supporting our sponsors. Find out today why so many members of the Orange Bloods community are patients of Dr. Swantkowski by calling her office at 281-293-9140 and scheduling an appointment or online at wendyswandds.com. That is Dr. Wendy Swantkowski, DDS. Call her office today at 281-293-9140 if you are in the Houston Memorial area needing family and cosmetic dentistry. Okay, uh, here we go. The Orange Bloods community's question and answer portion of the podcast looks like I have 
11, give or take, questions that I was able to get to this week. Once again, thanks to everybody for submitting them. I can't always get to all of them, but certainly appreciate uh, everybody submitting their questions. I hope that if I didn't get to it this week, that you can ask it next week if it's not anything uh, too terribly time-sensitive, which most of these don't seem to be, (laughs) to be completely honest. Um, uh, All right, so number one, this comes from at McLovin327. Do we, both moderators and Orange Bloods posters, Read too much into reports that player XYZ is looking good in practice. Isn't that just a baseline expectation for highly recruited players? Shouldn't they look good in practice? Don't we give way too much credit based on practice instead of reserving judgment for game production? Okay, and so what I say to that, I guess it's a fair enough point, and I see what you're saying, but... I mean, you're basically saying, yeah, I mean, they're good players. They're supposed to look good, right? (laughs) But I just think it's hard to – here's the thing. I can't reserve judgment for seven months around here. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, like, what am I – people are interested in knowing the minutia of what happens at practice. I mean, rightfully so. I I, I get it. So, But if I were to answer people's questions about how guys look at practice by telling them, hey, listen, guys, we need to reserve judgment – uh, we <laughs> let's wait till the football games. I like I would get mocked. I I would probably be fired. It's our job to cover the team and say who looks good. And um, I think that also it, it can be it can be telling of things in the future. I think a guy like PJ Locke has looked really good at practice. Uh, I think that whenever a guy like PJ Locke looks really good at practice, I think that you can consider his spot. You know, lock down and, and consider him a guy who could be poised to break out even more this year. I think, you know, also it's been my experience, especially with new players, though. If we talk about guys who are new players, that seeing them in competition and practice with others at the college level, it's one of the most important steps. It's like the final step in their evaluation. I want to see how they look in a college setting. So it was like the 2016 defensive tackles, the defensive linemen. You know, Charlie Strong wanted the – Big group of defensive linemen. He wanted all that meat on the defensive line. He brought in five of them. People wanted me to ask who 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 was best. I said I need to see him in a college setting. You know, seen him after one practice. I had a real good idea of kind of who was who and how these things were were shaking out. So, in short, I think that we can listen to buzz around the program about players looking good and or needing work in practice. Uh, I just think it needs more emphasis about the importance and relevance of the news decreasing with the player's time in the program. Meaning it's like um, if I'm talking to you about how good like Jason Hall or PJ Locke or something like that in practice, it doesn't hold the same weight as me saying like Tony O'Carter. He's just come in and been amazing, you know, but like I'm not saying Tony O'Carter has come in and been, and been amazing because he's come in and looked good, but uh, uh, not amazing. I didn't want um, – I just want you to know that I'm using that as, as an example. If a new player came in and he was like, whoa, this guy has just flashed so much and he's a freshman, but, you know, he's just like, wow, you know, that's like that guy's a beast at practice, all that. Then you realize that this is somebody who's coming in and he's kind of changing the game at, at practice. And that, that that's the kind of stuff you got you, you have to pay real attention to. I'd say about guys looking good at practice and stuff, though, I mean, we're just reporting about practice. And, you know, if a guy looks good, why not pass it along? It, it, it can't do any harm. I think you're right, and you have a fair point in saying how much does it really matter. But if if people didn't care in a maniacal way about this stuff, they wouldn't be on on orange bloods, you know, screaming at the moderators to get a practice report up. Um, <laughs> so if uh, all right, so number two, this is from Z Z Longhorn ninety nine. Uh, if you were a crab fisherman, 
on the deadliest catch, which captain slash boat would you want to sail with? And let me say, first off, I'm much more of a wicked tuna guy. Uh, certainly, in, uh, I can appreciate the question, though. I'm a huge angler, huge fisherman. Fishing's in my blood. I've always thought of jobs like being commercial fisherman in Alaska. I've always, like... I think I've always really romanticized a job like that. Like, even though it's probably absolutely horrible and pure hell. And I'm not sure I could do it now. Now that I'm Jesus Christ. Now I'm what, 37. Golly. Yeah. I mean, like I feel like I probably have the bones of like an 80 year old, you know, with ankles and knees and shoulders. I don't know. I'm not sure if I could, not sure if I could even make it even just from football injuries, rugby injuries, and then even like rock and roll injuries, carrying around big ass base amps and stuff before you can afford roadies. That'll have a toll on you. Get bending over, getting them out of the trailer, Ugh. load out after you. Uh. But Wicked Tuna, so yeah, so if I was on Wicked Tuna, I'd want to be, uh, we're not even talking about Wicked Tuna, well, deadliest catch, but well, if I were on Wicked Tuna, I'd want to be on the Hot Tuna with, with TJ, I think TJ seems like the guy with like the, he seems like the sweetest dude, like he has the best heart on the fleet, the guys on the hard merch have a good, have good hearts it seems like, but their boat sucks. I can tell also TJ, his crew, like they love to booze. They probably love to smoke a little grass out there, have some fun. Uh, TJ's brother, he's a good cook. He can whip up food that really looks appetizing as far as food you got to eat on a boat. Um, they also, like, they're, they're always kind of dicking around and catching a bunch of yellowfin and stuff too. It just so it seems like, a, you know, they and they catch those just to eat for themselves. I love yellowfin. They kind of cook that stuff up. So, um, but anyway, if we're talking deadliest catch, I would say probably for what Sig Hansen Northwestern, just they're, they're like Sig, like the Hansons on the Northwestern. And for one, it's because I think their big season is the King Crab season. That's the one I want to go on. I don't want to go out on the uh, Opelio runs. I think that the Opelio runs, if I remember correctly, those are during some of the worst times of the year, and those crab pots aren't as like as big or full when they get on those King crabs. That's where they make all of the money. Those things are like gold whenever they load up with them. So I want to go on one of those. I think that the um, Northwestern is also, I mean, I've seen it on the show, but it's one of the most successful commercial uh, fishing and crabbing boats in all of the Alaskan fleet. So it's been a successful boat year after year. You're going to make money going out there on it. You're not going to get swindled, and you have a chance to go out for king crab. I'm going to go with... Um, the Northwestern and Captain, uh, what, Captain Sig, Sig Hansen. Number three comes from XB Hookem. Your child comes home from school with a black eye and a busted lip. What's your next move? Well, this is certainly a different answer for me than it would be for a lot of you guys. For one, I have a daughter, and she goes to a farm school daycare. She's only two and a half years old. And they let kids at her school be rough and tumble, which I like. I think she just, I would just, just my immediate thought would be, how did she fall and bust her? lip up or her eye because like this is a school where they walk like they make them go out and they have to get their own eggs from the chickens for breakfast they have to pick their own greens for their salads like they have place time outside every day where even if it's cold as ice outside or even if it's raining or whatever they said i'm not sure that this is even true but they say at that at that farm school that 
when it is like cold and rainy outside and stuff like that, like you, when you still make the kids go out and play, they said it actually helps them. It makes them be more healthy. <laughs> it doesn't make them sick. So I've just trusted them. I, I guess that who knows? The other cool thing about my daughter's place is that they don't have a no digital thing, like no TVs, no screens, no nothing. They don't even have a digital clock. <laughs> He's an old school clock. So she gets to be away from that all day too, which I think is really cool. But every day at that school, right, they give you like a report. And so in the report, if there was an incident like that, I would just figure that she fell around while she was playing in the, you know, in the fairy garden or when she was uh, over chasing around the rabbits or something. But I mean, they would give me a report about it. I'd say if it was another kid that was doing it, I would make sure that everyone at school knew it was acceptable, that it wouldn't be tolerated. I would be showing up at the school during the next time that the parent drop-offs occurred whenever the parent of that child was there, and I'd just have a conversation with that little miscreant, that little bastard's parents. No, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything about I wouldn't call him a little bastard or a little miscreant. But I have a conversation with his parents, and I just say, what you know, I'm not here to step on your toes or to tell you how to be a parent or anything like that. But whenever, um, whenever this sort of thing begins to involve my child, these issues are arising and they're being caused in some ways by your child. Your child's directly involved in, in these in these things that I'm having to um, help 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 my daughter with and having to sort of put up with here with this bloody nose or whatever you know the black eye. Look, this is something we need to work on because now this is my business. And if they, I didn't start seeing a um, difference then, and the kid did another thing, then my next, I guess my next move would be to go to their house and start doing just little things around the property. I think the first thing I would do would be, I would just slit one tire on one car. And I would do it under the complete dark of night. I wouldn't do it till three or four in the morning. And I I do a couple of little things like that, just little things around the house. I'd space them out. Um, I don't know, ten days, two weeks apart. After I did the uh, slit tire, I might do something where I went up to the pet store and bought just like a hundred, you know, harm harmless like garden snakes, gardener snakes, and just let them free on their front porch or just right where their front door is, so they would definitely end up finding at least, I mean, most of those snakes would get away and run away, but they'd end up finding at least 10 or 12 of them. They would be very worried about some infestation of snakes. Um, I'd probably get some fertilizer, burn some holes in their lawn, just little things like this I would do. Just I would, I would continue it just for being such sick bastards uh, and, and being such shitty parents. Um, all right, number four. What is the ideal age to get married? That comes from at power spread and I don't think there's an ideal age but I ran uh, a couple of internet searches about this I read up a little bit on some articles from reddit and things I think honestly I mean I mean it comes down to it doesn't take a genius to tell you that just comes down to a personal deal I think sometimes maybe I think a lot of us act a lot like our parents and our choice marriage choices and time we get married and everything timing like stuff it could have to do with your parents um so also what you know you need to be ready to settle down you, know, you can't settle down for the sake of settling down. That's a recipe for disaster. With all that said, there's lots of research that suggests the best time to get married, if not wanting to get divorced, is between the ages of 28 and 32. Your chances of divorce go down slightly each year from your teenage years on, right until this four-year period, kind of starting at 28, 
going all the way to 32, and it kind of evens out. Then your chances for divorce go slightly, slightly up each year. Some years even as much as 5%. And this is such a you know, popular subject. They actually call this the Goldilocks theory. Like you don't want to be too young, too old. Like I don't want it too much. I want to like, I want it just right. Right. So 28 to 32 appears just right. But even in some of these articles where they talk about this Goldilocks theory and stuff, some of the, like some of the social scientists, they say that that comes with selection bias, I guess, meaning say like after age 32, just think about it. The potential pool of partners, it wanes. It gets to those who may not be as solid as candidates for healthy marriages, like for whatever reason. Uh, you know, most of the best options, it, I mean, at least common sense would tell you most of the best options would kind of be taken, right? So as time passes from there, the likelihood arises of other complicating factors you know, that are detrimental to relationships could lead to a divorce, things we know that are tough. Um, Maybe with somebody that's had financial troubles uh, during their 30s and they're just now back on their feet, but maybe still a little financially unstable. And then, you know, uh, it could be that they already have ex-wives, ex-husbands. That's always a sticky issue with with new with with new um, partners, ex-children from previous marriages, you know, life trauma, other issues, anything like that caused a lack of romantic relationships during during those years. But I'll say this, the good news for the older folks who need to still tie the knot at an old age is that there's a Maryland study that shows, honestly, what a lot of people think are better measurables. Um, Getting married is actually, if you don't want to divorce, 45 to 49 is the the best time if, if you look at actual relationships. So the one thing that we do know that everybody agrees with is that these four things are more important than age you're married by significant margins and as as long as you're predicting how successful the marriage is. And that is, one, having money, getting married at a point in time where you have a little cheese. Number two, having a college degree. That goes for both partners. For some reason, uh, people with college degrees do not get divorced as often. Three, being engaged before moving in together. That is another thing where it's basically everybody agrees on it. And number four, not having kids until after marriage is another thing that greatly uh, improves your chances of having a successful and lasting marriage. Number five, would you rather party with Willie Nelson or Snoop Dogg? That comes from Joe's generic horn. And either one would be terrific. Uh, I'm a big fan of cannabis. Both of those guys would have strains that would blow the old hair back, I'm sure. <laughs> I'd probably, I'd have to take it easy on any inhaling around the party or anything. Um, it's, it's probably much stronger than anything I'd be used to being around. Um, I, it's tough, too. I, I Like, common sense would have you say Willie because he's a legend and he's had so much time on this earth. He's had basically double the time Snoop has, it's more experiences, more wisdom. Willie's not long for the earth anymore either, so it would be like getting to hang with him one time before he, he, you know, rides off into the sunset. However, I mean, I would pick Snoop. I feel like I have a lot more in common. We have music bathrooms and we both, or music backgrounds, and we both love football. So I could probably talk to the guy for days about players he loves and guys he's coached and stuff. John Ross. I mean, he's a youth. He's an offensive coordinator for his youth team. We could talk about schemes and stuff. We could talk like real X's and O's football. Like I'd love hanging out with Snoop. Okay, number six. What's the furthest away physically from another human being you've been at any given time? That comes from Scout MLM. 
answering this question really makes me realize, you know, what a conjoined life I've led with the rest of society because it's true. Like by myself, I've been to some far off kind of remote places with my dad, with my dad and his, you know, um, and his friend and maybe a cousin or something or, um, you know, somebody who you, you know, you know, friends you grew up with, or maybe going out in the woods with their dad, but I, or just going out with your buddy on like going out hunting or going out fishing or something. But I, I can't think of any time that I've been out that far by myself. I think the farthest I've probably ever been away from another human has been at some point on my kayak. I know that my GPS tells me I'm, I'm a few miles out at times from where I've launched. I've, Sometimes that's right into the ocean too. So I, I'd say it's probably, I mean, it's probably been a few miles maybe only that I've just been completely isolated from anybody else. And that's depressing. I need to think about ways that I need to de- develop, you know, some ways that I can, I can get away from society. Uh, number seven, and this is a three-part question. A, how much weight, do you, uh, this comes from uh, Chase Nomad. A, how much weight do you put on which team's rookies are drafted two in a dynasty league obviously you're still going to draft a first round wide receiver over a seventh but talk to me how far you slide up or down rookies depending on where they'll be drafted okay so to answer the first part of that one landing spots of critical importance the minute the nfl draft is over my dynasty board will undergo a massive set of changes um you can almost put talent and opportunity on equal footing at, at, at that point that's the easiest way to answer it it's basically equal um there could be a player i have slotted like to take in the mid to just to answer your question specifically, let's say it's a guy who I've slotted to take mid to late uh, second round of a traditional four-round rookie draft right now, in, like in a four-team team league. He could get bumped to the, uh, the very – like let's say it's a – let's say it's a Samaj P. Ryan, you know, who I have on my board probably sometime in the second round. He gets drafted to the Oakland Raiders, and they don't sign beast mode. He's behind that offensive line. I mean, he's <laughs> that you know he's going to be moved up into my top you know three on my entire dynasty board. So it can move up that much. Uh, it just reminds you of last year of like Ezekiel Elliott. Of course, he was always a top five guy, but he moved to a consensus number one in dynasty. Jordan Howard last year comes to mind. Um, the next the part B of this question: Who are your top two running backs and wide receivers on the rookie big board? And I'm going to answer this pre NFL draft, of course, and this is just rookies for just rookie scouting purposes, not for you know team position fit and fantasy purposes. But my number one and two for the wide receivers are, and number two is hard, but um, it's number one is John Ross from Washington. Number two, I it's basically a, a tie between Corey Davis and Mike Williams. I would have to lean Corey Davis if you put a gun to my head. And then my runners, it's, it's, it's Leonard Fournette and it's Deontay Foreman. And then C, uh, give a sleeper pick in the second or third round of a 14-team dynasty rookie draft. And I think that's, dude, I mean, if, like, there's a lot. If, if you have picks through there in a 14-teamer, that's good. I don't even call these guys sleepers if you look at the current ADPs. I, I love uh, pre-draft. I love Kareem Hunt. I love Cooper Cup. I love Malachi Dupree. I love Zay Jones. I love Samuel Curtis, and I love... Carlos Henderson, you'll be able to get uh, two of those guys at the 2-3 turn of a 14-team dynasty league for 2017 pre-NFL draft. Okay, number eight, what is your biggest pet peeve? Not Orange Bloods related. That comes from Buddha 318. 
And for me, it's texting and driving. I think that these people are the most selfish idiots on the road, just as selfish as DWI people. I think that, you know, this is the 10th year since Steve Jobs' uh, touchscreen, the, uh, the, the touchback screen, tech, like the iPhone. It's, it's the 10-year anniversary this year. And in that time, we have become so dependent on these damn things that there are actual real developing psychological phenomenons right now called phantom vibration syndrome and the like. Like to where like you literally, if you're without your phone, you will, you will feel something vibrate in your damned pants. We are that used to it. When we hear a little ding, even if it's on a recording, that it's something that is for your that is you're used to hearing from your cell phone, your neck will crane and you will look for your phone, uh, even if it is something that's on the television. Like it's almost it's like a Pavlovian response we almost had to this stuff now. And so I almost feel bad for people that like they're sitting next to their phone and they hear this ding and they look down and like even the best of us sometimes can get caught looking down at our phones. I understand that. I my way to get rid of it is that I think that we should have. I don't know, something like a phone box challenge where you take some damn box into your shoe box into your car. And the challenge is you take your phone and you put it in that box for the whole time you're driving without allowing it the opportunity to distract you. If you want to listen to headphones, that's something different. You can keep the box next to you, plug in your headphones, get your podcast, whatever it is going before you get driving, set the box down, but keep the phone in the box. But no, I, I think that the people who text and drive, we're just hearing about it more and more and more. And it's like, I think it might be more dangerous than even a, the drunkest of the drivers. You're literally not even, at least the drunk drivers are kind of looking at the highway. They're not seeing it well, but at least their eyes are on it. Like people are looking down. And it's not just, it's not just te texting. It's checking emails and writing emails. It's worse than any of this stuff. It's worse than even the women who used to put on, or still do, they put on makeup while they're driving because at least their heads are facing forward. We're, having, we're turning to people with our heads down, looking down at a telephone while we're driving. That's my worst pet peeve. It's dangerous, man. There needs to be, there really needs to be change. Number nine, we all know the Big 12 conferences on borrowed time. What's the first conference that comes to mind as a good fit for Texas and OU? That comes from Wes Bearden. And to me, that's easy. I've talked about this a million times. It's the Big Ten. Texas could never play in the SEC. The ACC has opponents that are too far away. I don't think it's a good fit. The Pac-12, travel nightmares, no thank you. Texas doesn't seem to be a fit in the culture. The Big Ten, that is traditions of great academics. That's football, crazy universities. That's cool. Um, uh, kind of uh, intellectual college towns like Madison, Evanston, Illinois, northern suburbs of Chicago, Ann Arbor. Hey, Iowa City is beautiful. My 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 uncle Rhodes was a my uncle Rhodes was a professor there for 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 his for basically his whole life. Beautiful city on beautiful city. Like much more similar to Austin than the Baton Rouges and the Starksvilles and other stuff. Yeah. Uh, we have two more questions. Once again, thanks so much to everybody for listening to the podcast. If you like the podcast and you're not subscribed, please subscribe on iTunes. Please give me a five-star 
uh, rating, a good review. One of the reasons that I do this is to hopefully sell sponsorship. Uh, the, what advertisers look at so often is how many reviews you have, how many star ratings you have. If you guys want me to keep on doing this podcast, especially when the time becomes more constrained coming into football season, make sure you keep uh, giving those reviews, giving those ratings. So that's something I could point to for advertisers and make sure that this is worth everybody's time. Uh, also, uh, another reminder, just go to orangebloods.com, seven-day free trial membership. Uh, if you're not a member of orangebloods.com already. Uh, also, if I did not get to your questions, uh, once again, all the apologies in the world. I thank you guys always for lining up so many of these questions in the thread there uh, on the night before. Um, okay, number 10. What kind of base cabinets do you use? 10-inch speakers or 15-inch speakers? That comes from at Brykitis. And that's a trick question because, one, I don't own any speakers anymore. I'm not in a rock band anymore. I'm not a, a rocker. Mine are all sold. But the answer is both. Uh, I, I used to be sponsored by Ampeg, and I had my choice of the exact stack that I wanted, at least for a, t- for a, at least for a time in my life, <laughs> when, when we were going on, on big, cool tours. And once I knew what I was asking for, I always asked for the 15 uh, for the bottom, and then I want a 410 up top with the 410 inch speakers and the tweeter. So I'd, I want an SVT4 Pro on the top. Uh, I'd want the the 410, and then I'd want the 410 sitting on top of the 15. Um, if I had to just choose one, I would say I'd want the 15. It's smaller, it weighs less, carries the low end in rooms, ranging from like coffee shops all the way to medium sized clubs without even you needing a, uh, to, for the sound guy to, to even get a DI. I think that in Bigger venues like House of Blues, like arenas, you can have just 115. <laughs> you can just have it as your stage monitor and have that be enough to carry the low end through all the players on the stage. And front of house can just, he can put your uh, direct line right into there to the side subs just for the audience. Finally, num- number 11, and this is a weird one, um, but what would uh, it be in the OB question and answer portion of the podcast without a weird question, as if the, most of these haven't been fairly odd? At the farm's edge where the barbed wire holds back the forest, the farmer found a bloody pile of chuck and pickled peppers. What happened? That comes from at Diesel Burns. I'm going to read it one more time because it sounds like a riddle, right? At the farm's edge where the barbed wire holds back the forest, the farmer found a bloody pile of chuck and pickled peppers. What happened? And I think this seems like it has to do with the woodchuck chucking all, like how much chuck would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? And then you have the Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. I feel like I have both the sides of that in here. So it has something to do with the woodchuck chucking wood, the Peter Piper and his peck of pickled peppers. I think that the wood, I think that the, the barbed wire might be at the area where the woodchuck was chucking all that wood that he could chuck, and he was still hungry when Peter Piper showed up to the fence with that pick, pack of pickled peppers. So the woodchuck sliced and diced Peter Piper into bloody burger alongside all the chucks he chucked, and the pickled peppers spilled everywhere. <laughs>